Test, test. You guys hear me okay? All right. The one, yep, I will take as <laughs> collective for all of the class. I'm typically <clears throat> nervous to come up here just to let you guys know. I am extraordinarily more nervous now with the amount of people in here, so be patient with me. I'm also very nervous because for the oddest reason, I'm walking back from dropping James off at Children's Church, and Jonathan Anderson, Christy, and of all people, Tom, are walking here. And you guys know how I get around Tom, so <laughs> I froze. I was like, what do you, what do you, but I didn't say anything dumb this time. I said, hey guys, and I just kept walking. <laughs> it's my privilege to be with you guys this morning, as it always is, sharing, studying, gleaning from God's word. As we go to God's word this morning, and by the way, you can see the title of today's lesson is Jeroboam's, uh, Jeroboam's Rule and Ruin. And our topic of study, the scripture that we will be uh, studying this morning is 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 20, running all the way through chapter 13, verse 10. So if you have your Bibles, we're, we're also going to do our best to fit in 2 Chronicles eleven fourteen through 17. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them there. And before anything... Let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would prepare our hearts to worship him as we study his word. Father, we are eternally grateful and humbled that we walk into your house, Lord, this morning. That, that I and we are surrounded by your body a common believing body of Christ. And, and that alone strengthen, strengthens us, Lord. But we, we are humbled as we walk into your house this morning to worship you. Lord, to, to fall before you and acknowledge you as not only creator of heaven and earth, but our creator not only having authority over your, your creation, but having authority over us, we are humbled to be before you. And I pray that you would quiet our hearts, that you would quiet our minds and prepare us for your word. Prepare us for the lessons that we can take away from this portion of scripture this morning. Use me as, as your tool, Lord, to... to rightly divide your word but but i know that it is you through your spirit and your word that delve into the deepest recesses of our heart and i pray that you do that today i pray that we are convicted where we need to be convicted encouraged where we need to be encouraged and strengthened where we need to be strengthened lord pray these things in jesus wonderful name amen Well, by way of introduction, I'd like to say just a few things. As you guys are familiar with my cadence now, if, if you're not, you will, uh, little by little, get familiar with my cadence, but most of you are familiar with my cadence. I like to frame our lesson uh, off the bat, and let me just be clear. My beautiful wife, Maggie, is not here today, which makes the frame that I chose incredibly awkward. Because I don't choose leopard frames. <laughs> but she loves the leopard pattern. And so I was going to kind of like surprise her, you know. I wasn't going to. But she's not here, so it, <laughs> it looks just incredibly awkward. Um, so I apologize. I apologize that, that I chose this and that Maggie's not here and that it didn't work out the way that it should have. Ignore the pattern, if you would. Or if you like pattern, if you, look, if you like leopard like Maggie then enjoy it. Um, but the frame is what's important here. And it is the frame that gives us three main themes this morning. 
God's sovereignty is the first one. God's commitment to his word is the second one. And man's unbelief and disobedience is the third one. These are the central themes that play out during our lesson this morning. And I I would ask, I would encourage all of us to actively look for these themes as they play out in our lesson this morning. By way of outline, it is a simple outline. I hope that if you're taking notes with me, I don't have a handout obviously, but if you're taking notes with me this morning, that you can go ahead and follow this outline. The first point is Jeroboam's ascension, followed by Rehoboam's plot, and then ending with Jeroboam's dissension. So we have an ascension and a descension, and in the middle, there's a very interesting plot that will occur this morning. But it is a simple outline. If you don't have time right now to jot the corresponding verses, don't worry, they will appear once again as we go through these points in our lesson. Let's jump into our lesson if you don't mind. I'm going to start in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 38. And I'm going to start here because I think it's appropriate to do so. In, so many sen- in, in a sense, it's fair to say that our study this morning, chapter 12, verse 20 in particular, really has its start in chapter 11, verse 38. And, and even the preceding verses, but I chose verse 38 in the interest of time. And I'll read it along with all of the class. 1 Kings eleven thirty-eight. 38, Ahijah is speaking to Jeroboam, and he says the following. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight, By observing my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. And and herein, in this if-then promise, that God delivers to Jeroboam by way of the prophet Ahijah, we have really the beginning of our lesson this morning. We have the foundation that God sets, knowing that the kingdom will be divided, knowing that he has to provide a king now for the northern kingdom That's exactly what he's doing. And so from here, we progress to our first point this morning, which is Jeroboam's ascension, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 20. Jeroboam's ascension is composed of two major subpoints. Two major subpoints make up Jeroboam's ascension. The first subpoint is the summons and the coronation. And this is verse 20a through c. Read these, uh, read actually verse 20 with me. It says, It came about when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, that they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. None but the tribe of Judah followed the house of David. This summons and coronation functions as the first subpoint in Jeroboam's ascension, an ascension that God had prophesied in chapter 11 and Ahijah had delivered to Jeroboam. And now, before his very eyes, Jeroboam is witnessing God's faithfulness to him, yes. But primarily, Jeroboam, with his own eyes, witnesses God's faithfulness to his own word. His commitment 
to do and follow through on what he promises, Jeroboam is now a personal witness to these truths. This return from Israel is noteworthy for several reasons. It likely occurs on the heels of Jeroboam's interaction with Rehoboam. You recall, Rehoboam says, give me three days. Let me consider your request. In the preceding verses, three days pass. Jeroboam goes back to Rehoboam, and, and, and what happens? Rehoboam delivers some of the dumbest, unwisest news to Jeroboam. That's what leads to the ultimate division of Israel as a nation. On the heels of that, he is returning. In verse 20, Jeroboam is returning, and we're told that, that they assemble him and that they crown him. And so Jeroboam's return to Israel is noteworthy, yes, because he is crowned, yes, because he becomes king. The divided portion of Israel assembles. They officially crown Jeroboam as king. They have their new king, and everyone is happy. But his return is noteworthy, first and foremost, and above all. Jeroboam's return to Israel and his summoning and his coronation is noteworthy, not because of what happens with Jeroboam, but because this underscores and affirms the truthfulness of God's word and God's faithfulness to his promises. And so immediately off the bat, as we start, there is some application for us this morning, and it is that you, Christian, and I, Christian, can live with the certainty that God is truthful to his word, that he is faithful to the promises that he makes, and we can trust in that just like Jeroboam could trust in the fact that he was going to become king. You don't have to go there, but jot this down if you'd like in your notes. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Could you imagine if every one of our words were tested? I was thinking about this. What's, what's the percentage breakdown? I'm not going to confess to you, and I don't want you to confess to me, but it would be a low, low percentage, I assure you, compared to the per perfect percentage that God runs. Every word of God is tested. And because it is true, he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, utters these famous words. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. What is our takeaway? That Jeroboam was crowned king? Yes, that's the takeaway. But, but for us here today, be encouraged, please, with the biblical truth that though what I say may not always be true that what you say may not always be true. What God says is always true. He is completely faithful to his word. He is completely faithful to his promises. And we can be encouraged in that. The second subpoint that makes up the first Point, Jeroboam's ascension is that of the notable exception that last part of verse 20 read it with me once again if you would just that last little section beginning with the word none none but the tribe of Judah followed the house of David I have a map here which is hopefully viewable and you guys can see and helpful. It is a map 
that depicts the difference in size between the northern kingdom, outlined in blue, and the southern kingdom, outlined in red. Corbett made a very interesting point a couple of weeks ago where he said that although Scripture refers to the southern kingdom as being only Judah, you can see there that in red, there is tiny Benjamin that is circled in addition to the tribe of Judah. So, to be exact, to be truthful, it is in fact Benjamin and Judah that make up the southern kingdom that is now known as Judah. The notable exception that we find, going back to our first uh, point and second subpoint, the fact that Judah did not follow Jeroboam but remained loyal to the house of David is significant for several reasons. And it's important that we understand these reasons. One, it reaffirms God's commitment to his word as it was prophesied in 1 Kings chapter 11. Go ahead and turn a page back if you would. Chapter 11 verses 31 and 32 where it says, He said to Jeroboam, Take For yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe, notice that, he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. This flows very easily into the second reason that this notable exception is important. And it is because it underscores God's faithfulness to his promise to David in the Davidic covenant. Now, you don't have to turn there, but 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God speaking to David says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever your throne shall be established forever. And so once again, this this seemingly insignificant last section of verse 20 proves and speaks to God's commitment to his word. He promised David that his throne would be established forever, and here he is staying true to his word, even when he has decided to divide this kingdom. And finally, the third point is that it exemplifies God's mercy toward Rehoboam by allowing Judah and Benjamin to remain with him. This isn't something that many people talk about or think about, but the reality is that there is a measure of mercy and grace that God shows Rehoboam, by allowing him to stay on as king of the southern kingdom. He didn't have to do that. And Rehoboam certainly hadn't earned any of that mercy that he receives here, but nevertheless, he does receive it. That leads to our second point this morning, which is Rehoboam's plot. Rehoboam's plot. And this is going to take us chapter 12, verses 21 through 24. Like our first main point, our second point, Rehoboam's plot, is composed of two major sub-points. The first sub-point that makes up Rehoboam's plot is the gathering of the troops. Look at it with me in verse 21. Now, when Rehoboam had come to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah, and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And by the way, just a quick question here, if you could just play pretend. How long has it been since we played pretend? For me, not very long. I play pretend all the time. But nevertheless, play pretend and ask yourselves, if you would, and show your hands How many of you think that in Rehoboam's spot, in this situation, your reaction would have been something similar to that of Rehoboam? I'll be the first one. Yes. 
Yes. Okay. All right. Some of you are lying. <laughs> and other, others are, are being truthful. They're, they're saying yes. They just don't want to raise their hand. That's all right. That's all right. I expected that. Nevertheless, it is an anticipated response. It is an anticipated reaction that we have as part of Rehoboam's plot that he gathers the troops. In verse 21, as Rehoboam retreats to Jerusalem, after, after having been dethroned, if you will, of the entirety of Israel, we get a glimpse into his mental and emotional turmoil. And, and make no mistake about it, there is turmoil occurring here with Rehoboam. Fueled likely by embarrassment and anger, Rehoboam seeks revenge and desires to reclaim his entire kingdom. And as a result, he assembles 180,000 warriors from the two tribes that remained loyal to him. And in so doing, he displays his determination to regain that territory which he thinks is rightfully his even if it means the loss of life of his own countrymen. Amid Rehoboam's irrational plan of action, a godly voice emerges, which leads us to our second point this morning in Rehoboam's plot. Rehoboam gathers his troops, and then there is the prophet's warning. The prophet's warning. Read verses 22 through 24 with me. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You must not go up and fight against your relatives, the sons of Israel. Return. Every man to, this, to his house, for this thing has come from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and went their way according to the word of the Lord. The prophet Shemaiah, identified only as a man of God, issues a warning to Rehoboam and the newly formed southern kingdom of Judah, in these verses. It's interesting, not much is said about Shemaiah, but his warning is concise. And that is fitting because he's got a message to deliver and it's not his message. It is God's message. And if you're going to deliver God's message, you better be concise. And that's exactly what he is. If I were to summarize this message for you, I would summarize it like this. The warning's prophet is broken into three components. One, don't fight your own family. Stop. Don't fight against your own family. Two, return now. Return now to your houses. And three, and this is the chilling part, this thing has come from me. As we read it initially, I'm not sure if you caught that, or if you just read it in, pas in passing, casually. But herein lies the crux of chapter 12, verses 21 through 24. This is the important part of it here when God says, this thing has come from me. A quick question to the class this morning. What is meant by this thing? My answer isn't going to be very helpful initially, but everything is meant by this thing. Everything that is occurring is meant by this thing. The division of the kingdom. Think about this. The division of the kingdom and all of the uncertainty and the confusion and the anger and the doubt that is produced by this division is included in this thing that God is now telling Jeroboam, this is coming from me. 
And I don't know if we appreciate that often. I don't know if we think about those implications in their entirety. The prophet emphasizes by saying what he says that all that is occurring falls under God's sovereignty. We love to talk about God's sovereignty, but I wonder often how much we think about what it really means that our God is sovereign. So let's, let's think about it for just a little bit. Let me give you a couple of verses that shake me to my core. Jot them down if you would. The first is 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 and 12. 1 Chronicles 29, 11 and 12. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens, and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. What a verse about sovereignty. The famous words of Daniel chapter 2, verses 21 and 22 say the following, It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden Things he knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells in him. What is the takeaway? That our God is uniquely and entirely sovereign. That there isn't one stray molecule in this universe that gets away from God. He is sovereign. That everything is under his control. Now, having read those verses and introduced this thought of sovereignty to you, let me, let me clarify one important thing here. It is important to note that the division of the kingdom resulted from Solomon's disobedience and his idolatry. The the division of the kingdom did not originate with God. It is the result, it is the consequence of Solomon's disobedience and his idolatry. The prophet Shemaiah isn't, and neither am I this morning, attributing any type of confusion, uncertainty, or anger to God directly. That's not what I'm saying. Instead, the emphasis here is that God in his sovereignty controls the intended and even the unintended consequences that play out through history. Nothing is lost under his control. But it doesn't mean that things don't play out. It doesn't mean that he doesn't allow things to happen. This section is, is a beautiful comparison. It's a, it's a beautiful juxtaposition between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. And it should bring hope to you and I this morning that we serve a God that is so powerful, that is so sovereign, that even in the most difficult of situations, even even in the most difficult of consequences, he remains sovereign. 
He remains sovereign. And for the believer here this morning, we are especially encouraged by the words of Romans 8, 28. That only a God that is so perfect, that only a God that is so great, that only a God that is so sovereign could possibly weave the occurrences, bad and good, together ultimately for our own good. If that thought isn't humbling to you this morning, I would question a lot. I would. Because we don't deserve it. And so many times we do our best to put ourselves in the worst of situations. We do our best to put ourselves in the worst of consequences. And yet because of Christ's undeserving love and God's amazing sovereignty, he never loses control and weaves all of it together for our ultimate good. God is absolutely amazing. And his sovereignty is astonishing. We move on. We have to jump to our, oh, I gave you guys a glimpse. That's all right. Jeroboam's, Jeroboam's ascension. We've seen his ascension. He was summoned. He was coronated. There was a notable exception. We've seen now Rehoboam's plot. He's angry. He, he wants to retaliate, but, but God's sovereignty, God's powerful word comes and, and quells, calms Rehoboam so that he, he goes back home. That, that plot is quelled by God. And, and now we come to, candidly, the saddest part of our lesson this morning is, is Jeroboam's dissension. This is the largest part. It takes us from chapter 12, verse 25, through chapter 13, verse 10. Jeroboam's dissension. Read with me uh, the, the, the first. As you can see here, Jeroboam's dissension is composed of three major subpoints. the first of which is redundant. But, but it is so on purpose because it, it is hard to believe the unbelief that Jeroboam displays in verses 25 through 27 of chapter 12. Read these with me. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and, and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, and here it is, now the kingdom will return to the house of David if this people go up after the sacrifices and offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Jeroboam's descent is marked by a profound unbelief. To underscore the devastating impacts of his unbelief, there are two critical aspects of Jeroboam's unbelief that I'd like for us to see. The first is his defensive strategy in verse 25, and that's where this map comes into play. And let me just, because I've been looking forward to this the whole week, I want to play with my laser, so I want to just, and then I'll get it out of the way. And it's not working now. Yeah, that's, where is it? Oh, there it is. Well, I don't know. I, I got to get a better, better laser, guys. But this is, hopefully you guys can see, Shechem is right here. Penuel is right here. And they are located on the southern portion of the northern kingdom. I don't know about you, but understanding this helps me envision the story better as we go through it. There's a military strategy that is developed in verse 25. And, and why does it underscore the devastating impact of Jeroboam's unbelief? It does so because verse 25 says that Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there, and he went out from there and built Penuel. And one might think, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, he had a good understanding of the lay of the land. In, verse, in chapter 11, we're told that he was a mighty warrior. He knew this land. 
He knew where to go to protect himself. There's nothing seemingly wrong with what he does, except the fact that in building these cities, in fortifying his kingdom, he also shuts off the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom, effectively killing fellowship between the two, shutting off relationships between families, shutting off relationships between brothers and sisters, something he had no authority to do and had not been called to do. The second aspect to consider is Jeroboam's heart, which is related to us in verse 26 and 27. Understanding the geography of Jeroboam's actions helps us grasp his strategic thinking, and there was wisdom in that. Unfortunately, Jeroboam's initial wisdom erodes very quickly when he listens to his own hearts. And undoubtedly, the words of Jeremiah in chapter 17, verse 9, ring true here when he says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeroboam, despite witnessing God's truth and benefiting from God's word, chooses to follow his own heart instead of God's word. You ever been in a situation like that? You ever decided even after everything that you have seen on God's behalf and read about on God's behalf to follow your heart instead of God's word? I'll raise my hand for all of us. Yes. And so in this sense, there's a very true parallel between Jeroboam and us. The result is never good. This first subpoint, his unbelievable unbelief leads to the second subpoint, his unholy worship. Read these verses with me. So the king consulted and made two golden calves and said to them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that you brought up from the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now this is the thing. Now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not the sons of Levi. Levi, excuse me. Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month of the 15th day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar. Thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel, the priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. My goodness. His unbelievable unbelief leads to unholy worship. The establishment of unholy worship practices. Now, quickly I will say that, that this unbelief uh, develops into unholy worship in three central ways we've read about. One, the creation of two golden calves. Two, the institution of illegitimate worship houses. One in the north, Dan, and one in the south, Bethel. And three, finally, the institution of an illegitimate feast. The, the Feast of Tabernacles, he wasn't very creative, folks. The Feast of Tabernacles happened on the seventh month on the 15th day. What does Jeroboam do when he creates his new feast? He just pushes it up a month. On the eighth month, on the 15th day. That's all he does to substitute for the Feast of tabernacles but this is this is what the unholy worship includes it includes illegitimate institutions it includes illegitimate idolatry on his behalf he is now after having witnessed personally 
God's faithfulness, after having witnessed personally God's commitment to his word, he is now leading his people to give glory to two golden calves instead of the God that he knows to be true. And why? Because he thinks that by them worshiping in Jerusalem, which was part of Judah now, that over time their hearts would turn from him and go to Rehoboam. And, and in so doing, you can see how unbelief of God's word leads to idolatry. And it's no different in our lives. When, when we don't believe God and his word, we believe our own heart inevitably, we will end in idolatry. We will either put ourselves in God's place or we will put something else in God's place. But God will not occupy his rightful place. Such a sad, sad story. Turn, turn with me very quickly, if you would, because I want to show you how Second Chronicles eleven fourteen through 17 fits here. We have just a few minutes remaining, and I've got 10 verses to read to you and still summarize, but we'll do it. But I, I want you to see the effects. When, when, when he instituted these, these places of high worship in order to take the place of the house of the Lord, and he instituted the, the, the new priests, which he had no authority to do, and they did not meet God's law, they did not meet the Levitical requirements for being priests. Something happens to the legitimate priests. And that's relayed to us in Second Chronicles chapter 11, verses 14 through 17. Notice what it says. For the Levites left their pasture lands and their property and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had excluded them from serving as priests to the Lord. He set up priests of his own for the high places, for the satires and for the calves, which he had made those from all the tribes of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord, God of Israel, followed them to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, for three years, for they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. And you might think, man, this is kind of a curveball. I mean, where, where did this come from? It, it, it's not. It, it once again speaks and highlights to God's faithfulness he tells the prophets of old, Elijah in particular, I always keep a remnant. And, and that's exactly what he's doing here. These, these faithful men that were committed to worshiping God correctly, that were legitimately instituted by God himself, they didn't just go away. They didn't just stop worshiping when, when things went bad, when they were no longer able to worship the way they had been worshiping. They didn't just stop worshiping. They continued worshiping. They moved. They had to leave everything they had. They had to walk away from a lot of things that I'm sure they were used to, but they continued to worship It's a reference to God's faithful remnant that he keeps. It's also a reference, I think, to what the cost might very well be for you and I in order to legitimately and rightly continue to worship the one and only true God. Something that I would ask that you consider this morning and weigh on your heart. Because it is not entirely out of the realm of possibility and I am not 
trying to scare you, and I'm not trying to give you additional bad news. I am simply saying to you that if you are in fact a Christian, this line must be drawn, and we must be absolutely clear about this one thing, that there is only one God and one God alone, and that there is only one Christ and one Christ alone and his Holy Spirit that there are not multiple ways to heaven, that there is only one way to heaven. And if believing that to my core causes me to be ostracized, then so be it. That must be the attitude that the Christian lives with. If it causes me to be expelled from this country that I love so much, then that must be it. Because nothing or no one can or should stop us from worshiping God in the manner in which he deserves to be worshipped. I apologize. I, I have to move on. This leaves us with the last sub point here. Unimaginable judgment. Read these ten verses with me if you if you would. Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. He cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places and burn incense on you and human bones shall be burned on you. Then he gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Now when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! But his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also split apart, and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the Lord. And the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you. Nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, you shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. Just, just a couple of points that I want us to consider. I don't know about you, but as I studied this lesson th this, this uh, week and the preceding weeks, it was astonishing to me the rapid rate at which Jeroboam declined. It felt almost as if he had just become king, and, and, and he ruined it almost immediately. And there is no basis or good reason for his doing so. God had elevated him, and he had no evidence whatsoever, nothing that he could point to to give any doubt to God and his promises. Yet he decides to follow his own heart instead of standing on God's true word inevitably the consequences must be paid for his disobedience and his unbelief and and he is dethroned this is just the beginning but but this he, here is where the dethroning begins he is officially no longer king at this point and, and it's amazing, he still reacts with, with a bit of anger. Knowing that he's wrong, 
knowing that the prophet is, is speaking truth, he still reacts with a bit of anger and he stretches out his hand and, and in the sign of judgment, God withers that hand. I thought this was comical also in, in, in a funny way, God kind of reminding Jeroboam through this man of God that is not named reminds him, you should have obeyed. Because, because after his hand is restored, he, he says to this man of God, stay with me. And in effect, if we were using modern day vernacular, the prophet says, ain't no way, Holmes. Ain't no way. And so this, this seemingly funny interaction is a reminder you should have obeyed like he's obeying me right now on something so much simpler. As this week progresses, as this week commences and progresses, I, I hope that we're encouraged by this lesson. I hope that we're, we're brought to think about the unbelief and, and disobedience of Jeroboam. But even greater than that, I hope that you are humbled and awestruck and encouraged by God's sovereignty, his commitment to his word, his truthfulness, and the fact that what he says will happen. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your mercy and your goodness and all that you have given us, Lord. There are so many lessons to be gleaned from your word. I pray that what we have discussed here this morning stays with us this week and, and, and even beyond, Lord, that we are strengthened by your word. If there is one takeaway that, that we have this morning, I pray that it be that we are always reminded in our heart that you are faithful to your word and that you are sovereign, God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.